the show you need to get what you desire by avoiding the mistakes made by others before you. Learn the stories and journeys of what success looks like to find the freedom you deserve while thriving with your best life. And now I present to you the one, the only Rapid Results with Andrew Wise. Welcome back to another episode of Rapid Results. We have such a special guest today, one of my friends and mentors and colleagues, the wonderful, amazing Chris Widener. And in case you're wondering who this uh, Chris Widener guy is, he has been named one of the top 50 speakers in the world, a member of the Motivational Speakers Hall of Fame. He has written 23 books that have sold millions of copies that's been translated into 14 languages. And that's actually how I found him in the first place is when I was in college, I was Googling who are the top paid speakers in the world, reached out to Chris. He's like, hey, Andrew, how's it going? So Chris, tell us what is the biggest, most badass professional deal that you're most proud of? Well, you know, probably my book, The Angel Inside. I wrote it as a self-published book. We sold 120,000 copies, self-published. Random House bought it for their currency imprint, and it launched at number two on the Wall Street Journal, number seven on the New York Times, and number three on Amazon. Not number three on some Amazon category, number three on Amazon. And the only two that beat me out that week were the pre-launch of a Harry Potter book, and the lost manuscript of J.R.R. Tolkien that his grandson found in his attic after he died. So I figure if you're going to be number three on Amazon uh, to the, you know, probably the greatest fiction series of all time and one of the greatest authors of all time, that's pretty cool. And then we turned it into a a wine and food tour business in Italy because the book was based in Florence, Italy. And so now we take groups of about 20 people to Florence, Italy, uh, just outside of Florence in the hillside of Tuscany. And we visit all those great cities. And, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's a great book. It's the book that I love the most of all the books I've written. And uh, it, it's great. It's a great book. It's got history. It's got art. It's got spirituality. It's got geography. It's got uh, just a ton of great things. So that's probably, you know, off the top of my head, that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of professionally. Oh my goodness! And wasn't that? Uh, and tell us what what year was that book released, or did you get two thousand four? And then I think, uh, and then I think two thousand seven is when Random House released it as a you know. So we we had a few years where we were selling copies as a, a self published book. Well, you said we you you co wrote the book. No, no, no. We meaning my team, our team. Yeah, gotcha. The company Angel Inside. So check that out. So what I like to do, Chris, is I like to sit, tell the superhero journey. You know, how the heck do you go from being born and, and raised in a town to then happening to write one of the most top-selling books in the country, if not the world? Like, how the heck do, do you get there? And feel, feel free to tell us the three to five minute story leading up to that. Yeah. So I had a really crazy upbringing. My dad uh, was actually doing quite well. Uh, 1969 was the last year that he was alive. I was born in 66. So 1969, I was three years old and my dad made $90,000 in 1969. I say that sometimes in crowds today and people go, wow, $90,000. Most Americans don't make $90,000. So in 1969, it was a lot of money. We lived in a big house in a country club in Seattle. Uh, He was an architect, uh, CFO of an architecture firm, which is at the time it had 150 uh, architects. Now it has thousands and thousands. It's one of the largest architecture firms in the world. They did either the Google campus or the or the Facebook campus. I can't remember which, but um, 1970, uh, May 1st, he woke up, flu-like symptoms. Long story short, six and a half months later, middle of November, he was dead, the age of 41. Uh, began a downward spiral for my mother and I. My brothers and sisters were all older than me, considerably so that they moved out shortly thereafter. My dad died. I was kind of a whoops baby. And so uh, began to get involved in drugs and alcohol starting in the fifth grade, Uh, was in trouble all the time in school. I was smoking opium by the time I was in eighth grade. I made most of my money growing up betting the horses at Longacres Horse Track, you know, 28 homes, 11 different schools. My mom, my mom, uh, she flipped houses before it was popular on television to, to be a house flipper. And so we would move around. She'd buy a house. We'd move in. She'd sell it. I don't know why she didn't flip houses in the same school district. So I could have stayed in the same school, <laughs> but I ended up going to a ton of different schools. Uh, but that actually helped me because it taught me to, to be able to move into a new place and make friends quickly. 
10th grade year of high school, I uh, got 47 written referrals to the principal's office. And I know because on the last day of 10th grade, my principal, Bob Davidson, called me into his office. He had a stack of papers and he said, uh, you know, uh, you have 47 written referrals. We need to cut those way down next year. So uh, ended up doing that. Got my life turned around summer before my senior year of high school. Figured I better figure something out and did change my life, turn my life around and um, eked my way into college, went to a, a college whose primary decision on whether or not you can come to school there was not your grade point, not even those things. It was whether or not the check cleared or not. But I got a degree <laughs> in youth and family work. And uh, and then I started speaking right out of uh, a college because people wanted to know how this crazy upbringing turned into you know a person who had graduated from college and was making a difference. So high school, summer camps, colleges, you know, those kinds of things started speaking there. And then um, eventually I was asked to ghostwrite for a guy named John Maxwell. I, a couple of years, I wrote his nationally syndicated column. Um, and then that led to being asked to work with Jim Rohn and ended up co-writing his last book ever written, 12 Pillars. Ended up with a TV show in Dallas, uh, my own TV show called Made for Success. And then um, Zig Ziglar asked me to co-host his television show. And uh, that was called True Performance. People can still find that on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and type in uh, Ziggler, True Performance, Widener, something, some combination of those, you can still watch those old television shows. And people say, how long ago did you do that? I say about 30 pounds ago. So uh, <laughs> about how long ago it was. And I want to go back a little bit. Like, you know, they make it seem like there's always this big moment in your life. You're like, well, from here on out, I'm going to change things. Um, is that what happened to you in high school? Was there like a moment where you were just like, I, yep. I, I, I spent the night with my biggest pot smoking buddy and uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning, his mother, who was all of about four feet, 11 inches tall, threw the door open and said, get up. We're going to Sunday school. And I, and I, at this point, Andrew, I had no idea what Sunday school was. I'd never heard the term. I didn't know anything about church or God or anything like I would pray sort of randomly, you know, when I needed help. And um, and I got invited to this little Lutheran church. And so I went there and there was a youth minister there and he was from uh, Helena, Montana. He was a good old boy from Helena, Montana. And his name was Sam. And Sam was great for me on a couple reasons. Number one, I had never had a father figure. My dad died when I was four. One of my grandpas uh, left. I only met him one time in my entire life. My other grandpa died when I was young. I lived with an uncle. My mom shipped me off to live with relatives twice, but he beat me half to death most days uh, to the point where 40 years later on his deathbed, his, his daughter called me up, my cousin, and said, you know, will you come see your, your uncle? And I, I met with him a couple of days before he died where he asked me for forgiveness because he, uh, you know, he, he was sad for all the times he'd beaten me so bad. Um, and so my brother, who was 13 years older than me, he married a girl who didn't like my mom. So I rarely saw him. So I really had no male role models growing up other than this youth minister. So he he did two things. Number one, uh, he was a father figure. He had uh, I like to tell people he had size 11 cowboy boots. That's what I needed. And, uh, you know, if you know what I mean. And then he taught me about God and, and particularly about how we have a purpose in life and how we we have a grand scheme that is uh, designed to be followed and that my job was to figure out what that was. And uh, I've always had the gift of gab, uh, you know, in, in uh, high school, I was the kid who did morning announcements. Remember when <laughs> homeroom hit and it's like, okay, everybody stand up. It's time for the pledge of allegiance. And today at lunch is going to be fish sticks and tater tots. And, you know, the junior varsity and varsity football teams, please be at the bus by 4 PM, go to the game, you know, all those kinds of announcements did that. I did college uh, basketball. Uh, both on the radio and in-house, did uh, radio in Seattle. So I've always sort of used my voice and my speaking ability. I've done 2,500 speeches all over the world. I have always really used that as part of my uh, my purpose and my plan to help encourage other people and challenge other people to live the lives of their dreams. That is in incredible. And I feel like people don't talk about that enough, like the importance of having a spiritual aspect to yourself. In your opinion, what is the difference between being spiritual and being being religious? Yeah, I think religion is uh, rules and regulations and spirituality is about a relationship with God is sort of the way I view it. You know, there's uh, I don't think that God is this giant ogre up there just waiting to beat people over the head. I I believe what the Bible tells us that God loves people. I, I don't think he would have created us if he didn't believe in us and, 
You know, in fact, that reminds me one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite quotes from a movie. Uh, Jim Caviezel is a great actor, and he was in a movie called The Count of Monte Cristo, where he was put into prison, uh, wrongfully imprisoned, and he was in this prison cell, this dank, dark prison cell with this much older man. And at one point, the old man asks him, do you believe in God? And he says, I don't believe in God. And the old man says, that's okay. He still believes in you. And I like that, right? Because uh, there's a lot of people, we all sort of ebb and flow with our relationship with God and our beliefs, and they vary and those kinds of things. But God believes in us. And I think that that's an important lesson for us to to remind ourselves of, uh, that God believes in us and, and created us with a plan and a destiny and and it's our job to find that and, and live it. Yeah, I think uh, one of the best examples of that, too, is um, in the Sistine Chapel. If you look um, and, and God and the human about to touch fingers, God has his finger fully extended, like saying, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And it's the human who has the finger half extended, which is the only reason why they're not touching, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I, I love that perspective on things. And in fact, um, you know, it's a good tie in back to the angel inside, because the last chapter in the book, the angel inside is called No One Starts with the Sistine Chapel. And it's about uh, it's about the trajectory of Michelangelo's life, starting out as a young man whose dad wanted him to be a politician. And he had to he had to reject this idea that I'm going to be a politician. Said he became an artist. Artists were not very well regarded back then. And he ends up the sort of the 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 big you know he did the David obviously in Florence, which is what we visit when we go to the when we go to Florence. But the big one was the culmination of his career was the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, that is, that is really cool. Um, so speaking of um, you know, no one starts with the Sistine Chapel. It seems like. Once you discover the importance of religion and spirituality, it sounds like God is what gives you that confidence, that strength to accomplish everything. Uh, um, tell, tell us about that a little bit. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, theories about God and a lot of uh, how does God interact with people. And I, I'm, I believe in the Bible. I, I read the Bible. Um, but I think that a lot of people misuse the Bible. I think a lot of people use it as a weapon. And I don't believe that the Bible is intended to be a weapon. I believe that it's designed to be a, a roadmap. And so, for example, you know, asking about uh, God and, and the way I view God is uh, the most famous Bible verse in the world is John 3.16. You see it at sporting events. There's always some guy holding a little sign that says John 3.16. And that says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Who, whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But it's interesting, the very next verse, and this would be kind of like the the really successful accountant who lives next to a movie star. Everybody wants to go look at the movie star's house, and they don't realize there's a beautiful house right next door. So John <laughs> yeah. 3, 17, the verse right after it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And I think it's really interesting because there's a lot of people of faith who want, it's all about God's condemning you, and you're a bad person, and you're going to go to hell. and and I like that next verse. It says, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't the, that wasn't the goal. The goal wasn't to say, to prove that you're so bad that you're going to go to hell. The goal was to say, hey, there's a roadmap. There's, there's a way to live. There's a, there's a place, a, a path to peace, you know, whatever analogy you want to create. And that's my view on, on, uh, on faith is that God is there to lead me and to guide me. Out, born out of his love for me as one of his creatures. So that's sort of my perspective on, on Christianity. I'm a Christian, and, and that's my perspective on faith. And, and I think that it's the right one. I think it's backed up by the Bible. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. What you're saying is that, uh, you know, something that, that frustrates me the most is the concept of original sin, where because we're born, we have to feel guilty for the rest of our lives because we're not living up to God or Jesus's standards. And like, you know, life's too short to feel guilty. <laughs> well, let me, let me nuance that a little yeah. bit, Andrew, because yeah. I believe in original sin. In fact, one of my favorite mm -hmm. quotes is G.K. Chesterton, the old Catholic theologian. Mm -hmm. He says, original sin is the only philosophy empirically validated by 3,500 years of human history. And so I think if you look back at the annals of time, there's one thing that's pretty easy to prove, and that is that people are sinners. Even the greatest, most loving kind, the Mother Teresa's, the, you know, whoever, Gandhi's, whatever. We all do things wrong. But I, I think the nuance I want to take, and I agree with you, is, is it's not designed to make us feel guilty. And that's the way a lot of people wield it, right? They're like, you're a sinner. You should feel guilty. You're terrible. I think my perspective is we're sinners, all of us, 
but God still loves us and God still uh, likes us. I think God even likes us. And I think that God says, even though you sin, like we all do, we're all in the same boat, right? So if, if somebody's looking at you going, you're a sinner, all you have to do is go, well, you are too. We all are, right? And so, but the beauty of it is, is that in spite of that, God still loves us. God still has a plan for us. So that's sort of my take on original sin. I believe in it, but I also believe that it's been misused in order to abuse people. And it's not supposed to to abuse people. It's designed to make us realize our need for God and the fact that God is right there and willing to, and willing to be there for us. Well, that, that brings up a, a good question, too. And, uh, you know, I've had a good conversation with, with someone. I think it's mentioned in, in Romans that, how, you, know, you know, the joke is like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go sp- steal a bike and it'll be okay because all I have to do is ask for forgiveness. So how do you balance that concept of understanding, you know, when it's okay not to sin, when it's okay to sin, um, not to be so hard on yourself and under understand like, hey, it happened, how to move forward versus, okay, do you reflect on this a little bit more? Like, how do you, how do you balance yeah. all that? Well, there's an old uh, theologian. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer was a, a German theologian. And in fact, Bonhoeffer and his brother plotted to kill Adolf Hitler. And uh, it got screwed up somehow. His brother was really into it. But anyway, Bonhoeffer ended up doing prison time and the whole thing. But he wrote a book. And it was about what he called costly grace. I think the book was called The Cost of Grace or Costly Grace or something like that. But he talked about cheap grace and costly grace. So somebody who says, oh, well, God's going to forgive me anyway, so I'm just going to go do my thing, right? Imagine if you did that with your wife, right? And you know what? She'll forgive me, so I'm going to cheat on my wife. You know, it doesn't work that way. Now, I would also say, that people don't say, well, I'm not going to cheat on my spouse because there's a rule that says I don't cheat on my spouse. We don't not cheat on our spouse because there's a rule against it. We don't cheat on our spouse because we love our spouse, if that makes sense, right? I think you can make an an analogy of some sort in regard to our faith. We don't say, well, I'm going to go do this because God's going to forgive me anyway. But we also don't say, I'm going to obey because there's a rule about obeying. We say, I want to live for God because God loves me, because I'm in a relationship with God. Now, we still sin. We still make mistakes. We still get angry and yell at somebody or, you know, whatever, tell a little white lie or whatever. But, but our, our response isn't, well, it's okay. God's going to forgive me anyway. It's, isn't it amazing that God forgives me? And because God forgives me, even when I fail, that makes me want to have a relationship and it makes me want to do even better and to serve him and to do what's right. So it's, that's what's called costly grace. Costly grace says, I, cheap grace says, ah, forget it. It's, it's okay. He'll forgive me anyway. We, we treat his grace very cheaply. And so, um, that's, I think, the difference between those two. Somebody who's really serious about a relationship, they do it because they want to, not because they have to. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think, you know, what it comes down to at the end of the day is, you know, I, I've noticed, I feel like some people have higher consciousness and guilt levels than other people. Um, you know, like some, some people are okay, you know, taking advantage of people, beating up people, like, you know, tearing other people down so they can get to the top. And some people who, you know, I, in my experience who are, you know, I know people make fun of Christians too, because it's like, oh, I'm Christian, but I don't actually follow any Christian rules. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, in my experience, people who are have a higher consciousness and do their best to have a moral high ground, um, you know, they, 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 in my experience, they're, they're better people to interact with and spend time with. So just out of curiosity, too, why, why do you think there is that disparity of, of consciousness and guilt levels that people are, are OK with, essentially? Well, I think some people grow up in religious groups that uh, that use a lot of guilt and uh, and they don't understand the grace of God. They, they live more out of the law of God than the grace of God. And, uh, and so they make everybody feel guilty and they, you know, and then, and then there's all the made up rules, right? You know, um, women have to wear their hair long and they can't wear pants and they can't wear makeup and you know, men have to keep their hair above their ears and you can't dance and, you know, all these sort of things, right? And if you break the rule, now you're in trouble, you know, and, and I went, I, I had an interaction with a guy who was a Seventh-day Adventist. And, uh, and he was all about, you can't go to church on Sunday. You have to go on Saturday. And it's this rule, 
right? And to me, it was more like, I'm just happy if people are taking, you know, they call it the Sabbath, right? I'm like, if somebody will set aside time in the, if it's Sunday morning or Saturday, great. You want to go to church on Saturday? Go to church on Saturday. But if, if you work Saturday through and your only day off is Wednesday, you want to go to church or wherever you go on Wednesday night, you set aside that time. We ought to all be applauding. That's great. You're, you're setting aside time for your spirituality. But so many people get set on these rules, right? And I just don't see God as this guy who's up there with this little thing going, I'm going to check and make sure you follow every rule. And every time you don't, I'm going to blast you, or I'm going to make you have a car wreck, or your transmission's going to go out, or I'm going to punish you. I just don't, I don't see that from what, what I read the Bible. I think God is serious about the way that we should live our lives. I think there's certainly some things that, um, that he gives us as guidelines, not to trip us up as a rule, but to give us a better life. You know, my life verse is John 10, 10 says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I believe that God wants us to have an abundant life. So let's just take one. Uh, one of the 10 commandments shall not lie. Okay. Now, some people go, wait a minute. What do you mean we can't lie? God just doesn't want us to have any fun. In my <laughs> opinion, when you think about what lying does, when you think about all the bad stuff that comes out of lying, right? Just start with mistrust. If you lie to your spouse or you lie to your business partner or you lie to your brother or your family and they find out there's broken relationship, it breaks relationship, you know? Well, you're talking about bad, bad lying and circumstances that hurt people. Cause of course there's like, you know, let's say you're trying to protect someone and someone else out to get them for no reason. You have to lie to protect that person. Um, but you're just talking about lying that hurts loved and caring ones that you don't need to lie per se. No, I personally don't think you ever have to lie. But um, really, uh, even if the Nazis are at your door and they're like, hey, where's Anne Frank? <laughs> You're like, oh, she's uh, in the basement. <laughs> well, I, I think there's I think there's obviously different ways that you can approach those kinds of things. But mm-hmm. um, I I don't know that we need to get into all that. I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is, is that when God gives us a way of living, mm-hmm. it's not supposed to be because he's the giant cosmic buzzkill. Right. Yeah. He's one who says, hey, life's going to be a lot better. If you don't murder, life's going to be a lot better. If you don't lie, you're going to have better relationships. If you don't commit adultery, things are going to be a lot better for you. If you honor your mother and father, and I'm just working off the Ten Commandments at that point, right? If you honor your father and mother, life's going to be a lot better for you. And so to me, it's kind of like um, it's a shift in the way we view God. Is God the giant buzzkill in the sky who's just going, here's a bunch of rules. And, uh, and it's just so you have no fun or it's here's parameters. I view, I view the, the laws of God, if you want to call them that as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the guide rails along a road, right? You're, you're driving along and you're going maybe around the Grand Canyon or you're in the mountain somewhere and there's these guardrails along the side of the road. You don't say, look at those guardrails. Those guardrails are just there. So we can't drive the way we want to drive. No, the guardrails are there to keep you on the road so you can get to your destination. They're to keep mm-hmm. you from going over the cliff and actually dying. And so my opinion is, is that God's law is a lot like guardrails. They're designed to keep you on the road so you can enjoy your drive and you can get to your destination and not go over the edge and, and have all the problems. Because when you start thinking about, again, just for example, let's start with the Ten Commandments. You start looking at it, you go, okay, look at all the bad things that happen if you actually were to do those things. You know, that he tells you not to do, or you don't do the things that he tells you to do. All of a sudden you go, life would be a lot better if I actually just kind of lived that way. So that's sort of my take on, on God's rules, so to speak, is they're designed not to hurt us, but to help us. Yeah. And uh, the two things I want to say real quick. Uh, One of them is there's like another um, text I saw where like person one is saying, hey, just so you know, you you, you shouldn't do that if you want to live a fulfilled life. Um, and then the person two goes, but am I allowed to do that? And person one goes, yeah, you're, you're allowed to do it. And person two goes, okay, well, um, are you going to do it? And person one goes, no, I'm not. <laughs> and, and just, you, you got to remember too, like, like, I like that it's guardrails, it's recommendations, but it goes back to, you know, we do have free will at the end of the day and uh, just understanding the consequences of your actions. And I think I just realized too, when you're talking about original sin, 
you know, I, I love the quote too. the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making the world believe he didn't exist. Yeah. Um, so you're just saying if we're not aware that we're capable of sinning in the first place, that's when it gets dangerous. But we shouldn't feel guilty all the time saying, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm a terrible person just for, just for being here. Is, yeah, it's, a, it's that a struggle. Life is a struggle. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, the things that I want to do, I do not do. And the things that I don't want to do, these are the things I keep on doing. He was expressing this frustration, right? You know, we're all like, I'm going to lose some weight. And then, you know, you're like, eh, I'm going to eat some ice cream. And you're playa, you eat your ice cream. You go, ah, I shouldn't have eaten the ice cream. I'm trying to lose weight. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the things that we don't want to do. We have this innate struggle and we do them anyway. And the things that we, we want to do, like go to the gym or save money or what, we have a hard time doing those. So to me, you know, that's kind of the, uh, that, that's the struggle of life and everybody has it. And that's the beauty of it is, is we're all in the same boat. Nobody gets to be self-righteous and say, well, you know, look at me. I never break the rules. I never do this. I'm perfect. We're not. We're all in the same boat. We all need grace. And that's why I think when you find particular religions or members of a particular religion who are trashing other people, then that's self-righteousness. And self-righteousness has no, in my opinion, no role in spirituality. Yeah, I love that. Well, I do want to shift gears a little bit here. So it's been great to learn about like the foundations and like that, because I think a lot, well, what what are your thoughts on this? I heard a quote from a guy who is a millionaire by the time he was 25 and he's a millionaire coach. And he says, gaining wealth is 90% mindset and 10% skill. Uh, I'm curious if you, uh, what your thoughts are on that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I really believe that becoming a millionaire is relatively easy. I mean, look, just pick. I mean, if if you say I'm going to be uh, an elementary school teacher, you're probably not going to be a millionaire. But if you say I'm going to major in finance and get an internship at Goldman Sachs and I'm going to go to Wall Street, you'll probably be a millionaire by the time you're 26 or 27. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just a decision. Right. If you're going to save your money rather than spend your money, that's just a decision. But that's a mindset and a choice. But I think it's it's relatively easy to become a millionaire. It's the fact that most people choose not to. That's the real problem. That's very fascinating. I love that mindset shift and tweak is that I think that's what people are trying to figure out all the time is how can I make a million dollars selling lemonade? Or how can I make a million dollars selling my courses? How can I make a million dollars doing this? So I think that's a good point that people want to make a million dollars a certain way, but they don't realize there's an easier way to do it might be dirty and, and not as appealing, but there's a way to do it. But you you figured out how to be a millionaire doing what you want to do with the speaking and the books and the coaching and the programs. So that that's less easy to do, right? <laughs> well, but I, I utilize my gifts. My gifts were mm. speaking. I could have gone and been a brain surgeon. I mean, you know, I would have had to, it taken me a while to get there based on my high school GPA. But <laughs> I, you know, I could have chosen a, a physician's route. I could have chosen an attorney's route. But again, let's say somebody says, I'm going to become an attorney. Now you have, there's, there's all these branches, different directions you can go. If you decide that you're going to be a public defender, probably never going to be a millionaire. If you decide that you're going to become a defense attorney, you're going to have a much easier route to become a millionaire because you're going to be charging 500 an hour, thousand dollars. I have a friend charged $2,500 an hour um, as an attorney. And, uh, you know, he very quickly became a millionaire. And so, you know, I just think that if you want to be a millionaire, there are some routes that you can use to become a millionaire. You know, you think about selling courses. If you sell, if you sell a course for a thousand dollars, really easy to sell a million dollars. You just got to sell a thousand of them. Mm-hmm. If, if only one out of every hundred people buys your course, you just have to advertise to a hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. If it's one out of, if it's half of one out of every hundred people, you just have to advertise to 200,000 people at $1,000 each. You've sold a million dollars worth of courses. So, you know, you, you just always got to break it down. And that's the easy part. It's the discipline to actually do it. It's the mindset that says you have something to say. Those are the kinds of things that, um, that separate the successful from the unsuccessful. I love that. And, and how did you discover that or decide that you, w- you wanted to become uh, or hit seven figures of speaking and coaching and courses? Like, how did you... How did you come to that um, decision? 
Well, I'm ambitious. And uh, and I always tell people ambition has, it, it's a it's a double-edged sword. Ambition is both something that drives, and, and I love that I'm ambitious um, because it's allowed me to do some things that, I mean, my my resume is pretty steep at this point across a number of different, you know, I have a, uh, I've been successful both in ministry. Uh, I was successful in the speaking business. I've been successful in the political world and in some of the political work that I do. And, um, and ambition is what drives it. However, ambition is also a double-edged sword because when you don't achieve the things, you feel bad, you feel like you're a failure, you know, all those Mm -hmm. kinds of things, right? And so one of the things going back to sort of, you know, what the Bible talks about is, is a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't be ambitious. If you're a spiritual person, you shouldn't be ambitious. But I, I always tell them this, in the New Testament, the word ambition is used in a negative sense five times. Five times the word ambition is used in a negative sense in the New Testament, but it's always preceded by one word. In each of those five instances, the same word is right before the word ambition. Do you know what the word is? No. (laughs) Selfish. Selfish Mm. ambition. And Mm. it reminds me of the old Zig Ziglar quote, you can have anything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want out of life. So I believe that it's great to be ambitious, but we need to be not just consumed with, I want the money and I want the fame and I want the glory. You might get the money, the fame and the glory. And I've made a lot of money and I've achieved a a relatively well-known name. I mean, heck, I've got my own Wikipedia page, right? So, um, you know, uh, it's kind of like, oh, I finally succeeded. I I got my own Wikipedia page. But no, it's like, I view our time here on earth to be one that we're supposed to be in service to other people. And if you choose the right way of serving other people, then you will make more money than if you choose other ways of serving people. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm, my gift has always been speaking and talking mm-hmm. and articulating. When I was a minister, the most money I ever made as a minister was $72,000 in one year. Hmm. I, I paid. I was paid $6,000 a month from basically 1993 till 2002 when I decided to go and write and speak full-time. That was my salary, $6,000 a month. And in, in the greater Seattle area, that wasn't a lot of money when you have a wife and four kids. So, uh, you know, $72,000, but that, that's what I made. And the primary way that most people interacted with me was the sermon that I gave on Sunday morning. So I used my gifts and I made $72,000 a year. As a speaker, I make $30,000 an hour. So if somebody calls me up and says, we want you to come and speak, okay, great. Check $30,000, make it payable to, and we're in business. I do the same thing. In one, you're giving a speech you know, to, uh, to a church and you make $6,000 a month. In another, you're giving a, a speech to a, a corporation and they pay you $30,000 an hour. Somewhere in the middle would be like a college professor. You know, a good college professor who has tenure at a, at a good school with, you know, good finances, they make $120,000, $150,000 a year. Some really tenured professors who have some, you know, longer time, they might make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And so in every situation, you're using the same gift, but different venues pay different ways. Mm. And, uh, and so those are the things, same with uh, being a physician. If you want to be a physician, general practitioner might make $150,000, $200,000 a year. Brain surgeon, open heart surgeon, you know, those kinds of surgeons, they might make two, three, four, five million dollars a year. Uh, wow. Same with an attorney, a district attorney, or, you know, a, a, a public prosecutor or a public defender, 30, 40, 50,000 a year. DA, 70, 80, $120,000 a year. Defense attorney, millions of dollars a year. Personal injury attorney, can can make, you know, they get 40%. There was one guy, he did the Pennzoil thing back 30 years ago. And uh, I think he made like $600 million was his cut. <laughs> that was his cut because, you know, they get 30, 40% of the, of the, the payout. And I think mm-hmm. it was a couple billion dollar payout and, and his cut was hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. But they're all doing the same thing, practicing law. So I think what what I challenge people to do is, okay, what's your skill set? What's your passion? You know, what are those things? And then what's the way to maximize your impact and maximize your money return? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that uh, I'm so glad that uh, there's like another, another quick analogy too, to kind of keep back in what you're saying is like, if you think of a standard water bottle, 
if you go to Costco or a big store, it's like 25 cents or 10 cents a water bottle. Um, but if you go to Whole Foods, it's like $3, $5 a water bottle. You go to a hotel, it's $10 for a water bottle. And now there's a viral tweet going out about a guy where he went to a nightclub in Vegas. They charge $75 for one water bottle. <laughs> and, and like you said, the water bottle doesn't change. It's still the same water. Maybe there's different casing or plastic or versus glass, but um, it's all about environment and how you apply that that skill. And I think that that's such a good reminder to people. You don't have to work as hard. Um, you just have to have a certain skill to leverage in the right way. So how did you, so, um, so obviously there's, there's two levels here. The fact that you went from speaking for six years as a minister to being a professional speaker. I know a lot of people, quote unquote, they're like, I want to be a professional speaker and start from scratch right away. First, tell us, how did you make that shift going, okay, I'm going to go from a $5 water bottle to a $75 water bottle after that six years of uh, ministry speaking? Well, the funny thing is, is that in the speaking world, a lot of it is just the audacity to say, this is what you charge. Mm. Because (laughs) there are some $5,000 speakers who are better than the $60,000 speakers in terms of how good they are. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is branding. There is one speaker who shall remain nameless because I don't want to embarrass him, but he's one of the biggest speakers in the world. A lot of people would know who he is. I'm not talking about somebody famous, super, super famous like Tony Robbins, but somebody who's right now, he's really big and he is an absolute phony. I mean, total, absolute phony. There are people who have actually done videos about him and they show where he steals other people's stuff. He has built his entire, I mean, we're talking cover a magazine kind of person. He's been on the covers of magazines and all sorts of things, but there's been videos that have been done where they say, here's what Tony Robbins said. And then here's this other guy stealing it and claiming it's his own. Here's what Gandhi said. Here's this guy claiming it's his own. And they literally play it side by side showing. So but people think this guy's so amazing and so great, and he's completely deceived people. And most people, of course, are never going to do their due diligence. They're never going to realize this guy has basically just stolen everybody else's stuff and passed it off as his own. But I, I say that to make the point that if you can convince people that you're you're this super smart, super whatever person, you can charge a lot of money. You get invited to, to speak at a lot of events and, and these kinds of things. I think the best thing to do is to build your resume. So the way I went from a $1,500 an hour speaker, although, I mean, there was a time I was getting $500 an hour when I was doing youth speaking, you know, uh, $1,500 an hour all the way to $30,000 an hour. There's a couple things. Number one, you have to find a niche. Uh, And this is the same in in almost any business, right? If you're a generalist, you're probably not going to make that much money. If in, in In medicine, if you're a general practitioner, that's the lowest amount of money you're going to make. Oh, I'll see anybody. Come to my office. It's $50 for a visit, right? You don't make fortune doing that. But if you are a brain surgeon or a, a cancer, brain cancer surgeon, a lot less people, but the people who are left pay you a lot more money to actually do it. Same with law. If, if your specialty is you know, defending a certain kind of client, probably going to make a lot more money than if you'll just take anybody for any random DUI you know, thing or whatever. So in the speaking world, um, when I was a motivational speaker, I was competing against 20,000 other people. But then as a, as a speaker now, it's really my whole speech and probably the last thousand speeches I've given have been on the art of influence. It's about influencing other people, but it's not even so much about techniques of influence. It's about the character of influence, about who you are and your character and how that allows you to influence other people. And I think then there's just some other things. I mean, if you write a best-selling book, you can charge more. I'm very fortunate that I worked with three of the greatest legends of the industry, John Maxwell, Jim Rohn, and Zig Ziglar. Every time that happened, every book I released, every bestseller I had, every, every moment in my career where I had another accomplishment, I raised my fee. Because to me, and then there were actually a couple of times when I raised my fee, when I, I heard about somebody else who was making more money than me. And I'm like, I'm better than that person. And I raised my fee above, <laughs> you know, when I'm making 12, five and I look at somebody and they're like, they charge 15. Okay. I'm 17, five now. And literally that's what I did. Cause I'm like, I'm better than that person. And I have a better resume than that person. So I would I mean, say real quick too, isn't there a story where uh, you, you charged your fee based on what the budget event was? One time? Yeah, 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 there was one time, uh, there was one time I was charging $4,500 a speech 
And I got a phone call from this woman and she said, my CEO read an article that you wrote in a magazine and he told me to hire you to come and speak. And I said, okay, great. And they said, you're our last speaker to hire. And I said, oh, perfect. I'm in. And they said, well, what do you charge? And I said, $4,500. And she said, well, how about if I pay you six? And I said, <laughs> done. And then I asked her, I said, why did you offer to pay me more? And she said, well, she said, here's the dirty little secret. I have $6,000 left in my budget. And if I don't <laughs> spend it, then next year, they're not going to give it to me. So I'm going to give mm -hmm. you the last $6,000 I have in my budget. And from that point forward, I charge $6,000. That yeah. was, that's how I raised my fee that time. That's how I went from a $4,500 an hour speaker to a $6,000 an hour speaker. That's crazy. Uh, and so, that, so that, that's so cool. You literally went from charging $500 all the way up to 30 grand. And it's it's fascinating too, to learn how you you did that increments. Like you, and it goes back to the Sistine Chapel. You can't beat <laughs> the Sistine Chapel out of the gate. It's, yeah. It's I mean, unless you win a gold medal, unless you win a gold medal at 18, then you start at $60,000 an hour. But no, here, here was my trajectory. I went from 500 to 1500 to 3000 to 4500 to 7500 to 10000 to 125 to 175 to 20 to 25 to 30. That those are the increments over the course from 1988 to today. Those were the points and the increments that I charged and I raised my fee every time I had a significant business or career success or an honor or those kinds of things. I love that. And I, I do want to talk about, um, it, it is interesting when you mentioned how this, this person stole the content of other people. So when you're saying steal, you're saying word for word. The, word the quote. for word. They, they, would show, <laughs> they would show the meme and it would say, I don't say this to impress you, but to impress upon you, Tony Robbins. And then this person would do his, and he's viral everywhere. You can't get on the internet without seeing the guy. And mm -hmm. it's him and he's talking. And then he'll say this and the little thing comes up and it says, I don't say this to impress upon you, but, or to impress you, but to impress upon you. And there has his name at the bottom. He literally mm. swipes people's stuff and puts his name. And the video is really damning because this person who, who did the expose of him, she literally just puts them up side by side, shows him <laughs> actually stealing the other person's stuff. You know, and, and I'm a little bit more sensitive to that because having worked with Jim Rohn, Jim Rohn is the most stolen from speaker I've ever seen in my oh, life. I bet. Yeah. And, you know, having worked seven years with him and wrote his last book with him, I know all of his stuff. I can't tell you how often I'm sitting there in an audience and I hear some other speaker try to pass off some Jim Rohnism. And in fact, I see it happen on the internet sometimes. People will do a Jim Rohn quote work harder on yourself than you do on your job. You know, that's a Jim Rohn thing. And then they'll, mm -hmm. they'll just post it. No credit, no nothing. I always jump in and I say, I love Jim Rohn. He's an amazing, great quote. Thanks for sharing it. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot to put his name on there. How you know, convenient. That happens to Jim Rohn all the time. People pass his stuff off all the time. Well, I do want to – so the interesting thing about that, um, I mean, so admittedly I have read the book The Game by Neil Strauss. Um, and, and one of the big takeaways I like from that book is how he talks about how he met all these different experts in, in the field. And he took the best content, what he thought was the from each expert to create himself as his own expert. And so I'm wondering if, if you could talk about, you know, creating your own content, even though that content already came from somewhere else, but like figuring out like retooling it in your own way um, versus feeling guilty about just taking other someone else's content. Um, does it make sense what I'm trying to yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, I will say, I'll start by saying this. The book of Ecclesiastes says of the writing of books, there is no end. And, uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Yeah. So there's <laughs> exactly. nothing new under the sun. However, mm -hmm. you can't take a phrase like, uh, you can have anything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what, what they want out of life. That's a Zig Ziglarism. Zig coined it. Zig said it. Said it in every speech. You know, uh, if you if all you're doing is paraphrasing and just readjusting the words, you're just stealing, right? And so, to me, if you can come up with a different way of producing that concept without just flipping the words around instead of instead of you know Zig Ziglar said the red car or the blue car stopped at the red stop sign. And you go, and, and your famous saying is, at the red stop sign, a blue car sat. You know, you're just stealing, right? Yeah. To me, I quote a lot of people in my speeches. And the reason that I quote people is I, I think that it makes me look smarter. It makes mm -hmm. me look well-read. 
you know, for example, you've you've asked me a number of things today. Uh, you know, we talked about costly grace, and I said there's an old theologian, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I credited Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I gave you a little bit of story about it. I could have just said, well, I think it's the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. <laughs> I could have passed that whole concept off as my own. But you know what? It tells people, wow, this guy just pulled a Bonhoeffer quote, right? Like, he must be smart. He must be well-read. Or you talked about original sin. I said, one of my favorite quotes of all time is G.K. Chesterton, the old Catholic theologian. You know, I've quoted Jim Rohn. I've quoted Zig Ziglar. I've quoted Tony Robbins, all in the midst of this thing. Not It doesn't demonstrate how smart and original I am, but it does demonstrate how well-read I am and my ability to grasp information from various sources, pull it in and help me make my point. My career sort of mid-90s was doing uh, time management seminars. That was kind of my first foray into speaking to adults as opposed to youth that I started with. And I literally read like 30 books on time management. I watched five videos, you know, 10 videos on time management, like everything about, and I called it the ultimate time management seminar. But when I went through the seminar, I gave credit to the people that I pulled from, right? And so so I didn't pass it off as, look how smart I am. I created the ultimate time management seminar. People said, oh, Chris pulled all this together to create the best of the best. So to me, not only is it ethical to actually give credit where credit is due, I think it actually makes you look smarter. And there's an old joke in the speaker world that, you know, the first time you quote somebody, you say, well, as Joe Schmo says, X, Y, Z. And the second time you say, uh, the second time you say, as it's been said, X, Y, Z. (laughs) And the third time you say it, you say, as I always say, X, Y, Z. (laughs) Right. And that's the way a lot of people rip people off. Mm -hmm. I believe ethically you need to tell where the thing came from. And it also actually makes you look smarter because it makes you look like you're well-read. I love that. And I know like, uh, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure I've forgotten to, to give credit where credit's due sometimes. And that is, that is interesting that maybe even on a subconscious level, we think, oh, of course I came up with that. <laughs> I have and a thing so. in, my, in my speech. I've given a speech a thousand times. And in my speech, I talk about this concept about integrity. And integrity shares the same root word as the old math term, integer. Now, I would have never, and and so an integer is a whole number, and so integrity means to operate out of wholeness. It means to operate out of a single set of morals, ethics, and values, not a dual set of morals, ethics, and that's integrity, right? Well, when I tell that, I cannot, for the life of me, remember where I read that. It was not an original concept (laughs) to me. I didn't figure out that integrity and integer share the the same root word. So every speech I give, I tell the people, I don't remember who said it. But this is not an original concept to me. I wish I could remember who said it so I could give them credit. Still to this day, 17 years after giving that speech for the first time, I still tell people, I didn't come up with this, some person whose name I can't remember. And I'm hoping that someday that man or woman is in the audience or someday (laughs) somebody says, oh, that's from the book such and such by so and so. And from that point forward, I will give them credit because I think ethically we have to do that. 17 years and still no one knows where that quote came no. from. <laughs> I read, I don't even remember. I think I read it in a book or a magazine or something, or I heard it on a speech. I don't know, but I always tell people this isn't original to me, but here's the concept. I think we all know it's going to end up being credited to you, Chris. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but at least, at least the, the, your conscience is clear about it. You did your yeah. best. So. <laughs> and you know what? There's a great thing to having a clear conscience. Yes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So I want to shift into relationships a little bit. So we're talking about quotes and, and all that. How did you go right out of the gate working with uh, John Maxwell and Jim Rohn? And, and well, it wasn't out of the gate. People? I started oh, okay. speaking in 1988. I started mm-hmm. working with John Maxwell in 2002. So oh. 14 years. And I'll tell you a funny story. I was a pastor for uh, from 88 till 2002. I was a pastor, but I also was building my speaking business on the sides. So mm-hmm. I was preaching in church, but I was also speaking at corporations. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people don't know that John Maxwell had sort of the same journey. He was a pastor mm-hmm. and he used to do pastor's seminars. And I remember I took a graduate course, a ministry a graduate course from John Maxwell before anybody outside the church had ever heard of him. And uh, I took a course uh, up in Seattle at a, at a graduate school there from John Maxwell before anybody knew who he was. 
And so when he got out and started doing speaking full time, he he wrote a book called 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership and it be bestseller, sold millions of copies. And that sort of put him on the map. And when they were looking for somebody to do writing with him, they wanted somebody that could get his voice. Well, I got his voice because I was a minister turned business speaker and he was a minister turned business speaker. So I sort mm-hmm. of got his mindset and and his verbiage and, and a lot of that kind of stuff. And so for a little under two years, I, I wrote uh, his nationally syndicated column and, and worked on that. Wow. And so... So John Maxwell was that stepping stone to working with Jim Rohn. Yeah. So Jim Rohn called me up and said, Hey, would you come and write? And and I said, Well, I'd like my name on the I'd like my name on the stuff. So we wrote the the Jim Rohn one year program, which was a 52 week personal development program. They still sell it today. If wow. you go to jimrohn.com, you can still buy that thing. I wrote that thing in from October 2002 till September 2003. And I still make royalties on it every single month. Wow. And uh, and then we turned that into a book called 12 Pillars, which was Jim Rohn's last book he ever wrote, 12 Pillars. And the 12 Pillars are based on the 12 pillars of the one-year success program. Every month had a different pillar. So 12 Pillars, we wrote a book called 12 Pillars. And um, and still to this day, uh, I in fact, I just got my deposit. Success Magazine owns Jim Rohn International now. And and just about three or four days ago, I saw my royalties got dumped into my bank account and <laughs> from 12 Pillars and the Jim Rohn One Year Success Plan. Wow. And speaking of royalties, just curious, what is your top income earner? Is it the speaking or do you have other endeavors like real estate or, or anything like that? I have a lot of different things, partly because I'm ADD and partly because I understand that you need to diversify. But uh, I make money coaching. I make money speaking. I make money on royalties. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I have a bunch of different publishers who publish my stuff, three or four main publishers that I, I still get royalties from. And one of them is based in Seattle. And uh, they have probably 40 of my audio programs and books. And they have a whole bunch of derivatives of them as well. But my number one bestseller from that publisher, and they have 30 or 40 titles, my number one bestseller is one little book, and it represents half of my royalties from that publisher, even though they have 30 or 40 of my titles. And it's a little book called How to Talk to Anybody, Anytime, Anywhere. Mm. And it's a book on how to build quick rapport with people. And I wrote it because there's so many people that if they go to a wedding reception or a funeral or they plop down in, into an airplane next to somebody and it's going to be a four-hour flight. A lot of people don't know how to start a conversation. And so um, I wrote a little book. It's it's short book. Uh, and it's called How to Talk to Anybody, Anytime, Anywhere. And that's my number one bestseller from one of my publishers is, is one book equals half of all my royalties from that particular publisher. Wow. <laughs> um, and I think, uh, and that wasn't the first book you ever wrote, right? Like, like it still took you a few books. No, the first book that I ever wrote was called Made for Success. In the middle 90s, I got on the internet and I started an email newsletter. And pretty soon I had 100,000 subscribers. By about 96, 97, I had 100,000 subscribers. And I decided I'm going to write my first book. And actually, this is a parenthetical statement. My next book, which is coming out in October called Four Seasons, it's already pre-sale on Amazon. That book is actually the first book I ever wrote. I wrote it in 1993. And it has sat on a shelf for 29 years. Wow. Uh, it's coming out 29 years after I wrote it. Um, but the first book I actually published was called Made for Success because my company was called Made for Success. And I wrote it by writing a chapter per week and sending it out to my newsletter. So first chapter was one week, second chapter was the next week. And when I had 12 or 13 chapters, I put them all together. I, I self-published, I put them into a Word document, I uploaded it to the cloud. And next thing you know, I got a box full of, of books. It was crappy. It, it looked bad. It had bad graphics, you know, the whole thing. That was my first book, Made for Success. The second book I wrote was, um, I had another little newsletter that I did called Success Quotes. It was a daily quote. So I took a quote from somebody else and then I wrote a paragraph about the quote. So it was two paragraphs. You could kind of get a little boost every single, uh, every single day. And, uh, and I took that and I created almost like a calendar thing. You know, it had a, it had the little, um, a coil 
binding. And so you could put it on your desk and you could flip to the next quote and then flip to the next quote and flip to the next quote. That was the second book I ever wrote. And, and then uh, from there, I've written lots of eBooks and, and uh, regular books. Some of them are out of print now. Some of them are still in print. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I'm reading the book uh, cash for right now. And, and he talks about how those books that just say a daily quote um, are, are very, very popular and successful. Do you agree with, was it Zig Ziglar or Jim Rohn who said that motivation's like um, bathing? It's yeah. recommended daily. <laughs> that was Zig Ziglar. Yeah. 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 People say, oh, I don't want to get more. Well, motivation's like a bath. Uh, you, you know, we recommend doing it daily. Yeah. So how do you keep yourself motivated, inspired, and constantly? And, and Well, obviously, you have this innate ambitiousness, which is awesome. But how do you stay motivated and inspired to keep pushing through obstacles and staying resilient? I surround myself with other people who are like me, who who are like minded. I don't uh, I don't suffer fools, and I don't hang around them much. Um, I start every day. My wife and I we get up and we make ourselves coffee. And uh, now we we live in Tennessee. We have a sunroom out in the back. It's got screened in porch with a fireplace and nice chairs and and everything. We go out there. Um, uh, if, if it's during the winter, we, we turn the fire on and we sit down with a cup of coffee and we read uh, a book together. We, we typically will read um, uh, what they call a daily devotional. It's like a one page, you know, kind of gives you a thought for the day. And then we'll read a little bit from the Bible. And then we read a book, a different kind of book. Uh, we might read a marriage book. We might read, you know, we, we read together. We probably spend 20 to 30 minutes at the very beginning of every day doing that. We did it today. And, um, and so we begin each day sort of setting the course for the day. And, um, and so, and then I read throughout the day. I've always got a, a number of different books that I'm reading and you know, some of those kinds of things. No, it makes sense. And uh, while you're talking about uh, your partner as well, what, how do you balance that personal professional relationship? Um, do you guys work together professionally as well? And how do you make sure you spend enough time on your craft versus spend time with your, your spouse? You're talking about Denise. Um, yes. Well, she, she's an executive with AT&T. She also owns a, a real estate company and uh, I help her a little bit with the real estate company. Um, she handles my booking, you know, uh, for speaking engagements and those kinds of things. But uh, no, she has her own stuff that she does. I have my own stuff, but we we dabble and do some things together as well. Oh, um, but do you guys, so it sounds like but to make sure you guys both spend enough time together, you spend time each morning. It sounds like you check in at the night. Do you have like weekly, um, how's it going calls or monthly date required dates or how, how do you balance that? Um, you know, it's just us. The kids are all grown. So we're together a lot. We both work from home. So it's it's actually, that's the easy part actually is spending time together. But we go out, uh, we go out on date nights and we try to have fun. And Amos Lee is coming to town here, the, the singer. So I bought tickets because uh, she's an Amos Lee fan. I, I literally, if you stuck a gun to my head and said, name an Amos Lee song, I couldn't name it. But I, I looked him up and I listened. I'm like, oh, yeah, I like this music. So we're going to Amos Lee here coming up. He's coming to Chattanooga. So we've got tickets for him. And, um, you know, we'll go see movies. We, we just went and saw Maverick. One of our daughters is home for the summer from Vanderbilt. And so we, uh, we went and saw Maverick together on the IMAX and, and, um, we, we get out and we do fun things. We travel together. We just got back from a week in Mexico. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, a very wealthy gentleman, uh, owns a private residence on the Sea of Cortez. And I helped him out on some business stuff and he said, Hey, go, go spend some time in my place. And so I'm like, okay, cool. And, and, uh, and I said, I'm, I'm sure it's nice, right? He goes, yeah. It's nice. He said, last week I rented it to Leonardo DiCaprio. So, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, it must be nice. And it oh was a gosh. beautiful, beautiful place and, and a nice place. So, And you mentioned, uh, yeah, the importance of spending time with people who are like-minded. Um, how do you vet people who you, who you spend time with, who you, who you keep in your, in your circle? You know, it's funny. My, my son says to me, why do you only hang around with rich people? <laughs> and, I, and I said to him, I said, I don't, it's not the fact that they're rich and it's not true. First of all, I hang around with a lot of people who are not rich, but you know, we'll talk on the phone and I'll say, Oh, I was hanging out with so-and-so and, so, and, he, and he'll say to me every now and then, why do you only hang around with rich people? And I said, I, it's not that I hang around with rich people. I hang around with interesting people. Hmm. And a lot of interesting people have become rich. So there are like, I don't hang around with anybody who's a trust fund baby. Like hmm. I don't have any of my friends who just inherited a bunch of money. The people who I have as friends who are wealthy, they've built real estate empires. They've been professional athletes. 
They've started clothing manufacturing companies. The gentleman who gave us the house in Mexico owns one of was the founder and owns one of the largest athletic wear companies in in America. So it's not the fact that they're rich, like, oh, you're rich. I got to hang out with you. It's, wow, you're really fascinating. How did you do that? What was that like? And then I I become friends with who they are and they just happen to be rich. So Mm. to me, I find people fascinating. I, I used to have an interview show and Darren Hardy, a lot of you probably know who Darren Hardy is. He was the publisher of Success Magazine. Prior to that, he was the president of the television network where I had my first TV show. And it was called Made for Success. And it was an interview show. And he came to me once and he said, he said, I watch your show more than any other show on our network. And I said, really? Why? And he goes, you are an amazing interviewer. And I said, oh, well, thank you so much. He goes, what makes you such an, an amazing interviewer? And I said, well, if I had to guess, it's because I find people interesting. I, I really find people. In- I'll give you an example. I interviewed a guy named John Connors once. And John has become a friend of mine. John is the managing partner at... Um, Ignition Partners in Seattle. He is the only guy to ever hold two C-level positions at Microsoft. He was their chief financial officer and he was their chief information officer. So I interviewed him on my television show called Made for Success. And I'd done my research beforehand and I knew that he grew up on a farm and that he was really big into um, conservation. He goes to the rodeo in Las Vegas, the big, the big international rodeo in Las Vegas every year. And so we're talking and and I'm doing this interview. And I said to him, I said, how does a guy go from growing up on a farm and being into like Buffalo conservation and being a rodeo fan to being the only guy to hold two C-level positions at the biggest, and this was pre-Apple and pre-Tesla, you know, the biggest company, the most valuable company, the biggest, most influential tech company in the history of the world. And he said, Chris, do you know how many farm boys there are in the top 20 people at Microsoft? And I said, no. And he said, yeah, this guy and this guy. And I lived in Seattle, so I knew a lot of their names. This guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. He named seven people in the top 20 people at Microsoft who grew up on a farm. Well, all of a sudden, our conversation switched. I'm like, what is it about growing up on a farm? (laughs) And, you know, you could probably guess discipline, hard work, you know, all those kinds of things, right? Timing. Yeah. Time. Yeah. All those kinds of things. And so I find people fascinating and that's what made me a good interviewer because I just find people's stories really, really interesting and all the different ways that people get to success. I went to a fundraiser once, big giant house, 15,000 square feet. And it was a fundraiser and I was new to town. So I end up in this big, beautiful house. I mean, views for like 40 miles. And the guy and I have ended up becoming really close friends. But this was the first time I'd ever, I didn't even know who he was. When I was at the fundraiser, I didn't even know who the owner was. But you know, you go to these fundraisers and you grab your glass of wine and you're sitting off in the corner like, oh, I wonder if anybody's going to talk to me. And I start talking to this guy. And so I say to him, I say, hey, what does the guy do that owns this place? And he says, oh, he's an orthodontist. And I said, this is an orthodontist money. This is tech money. And he goes, oh, well, he invented this software that like 80% of all orthodontists use to run their, you know, their practice. And I'm like, that's really fascinating to me. Well, some point over the course of the night, this guy walks up to me and says, hey, I'm the owner. Thanks for coming. We started talking and I started talking about technology. And next thing he goes, we should go to lunch. And we have just become fast friends, not because he's rich, but because he's fascinated. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've met a lot of rich people who I have no desire to hang out with because they bore me or they inherited their money and they've not done anything with it or, you know, all sorts of things like that. I'm interested in people who've done really interesting things. I love that. And I think that's one of the, my top life hacks is life, too, is just like in order to get along with people, be genuinely curious, and interested, and also make them feel good <laughs> every, every chance you get. Absolutely. And it's been my life hack. Well, I know we have a couple minutes left. Uh, just want to do some rapid fire questions. Right. Um, Chris, any, anything else that you wish pe- that you wish you had done early in your own professional career um, that would have helped get you faster to where you wanted to go? No. In fact, I would say the opposite. I wish that I would have appreciated every stage of my career rather than wishing I was at the next stage of my career. Mm. Um, you're going to get there. How old are you, Andrew? You, I'm guessing you are you 30, 28, 29, 28, 28. 28. Yeah. 
I'm 56 and you're going to be 56 sooner than you know it. You're going to be going to college graduation sooner than you know it. Uh, my wife said to me today, uh, we have a daughter at uh, University of Alabama and she, we were driving in and she said, how did we end up with a college senior? And I said, well, you just lived enough years. And so, you know, uh, enjoy being single and then enjoy being married with no kids and then enjoy those little babies and then enjoy going to their games and then enjoy shipping them off to college and being empty nesters again and then enjoy bringing them back home with their grandbabies. Don't wish for the next stage because the next stage is coming soon enough. Make sure, reminds me of an old Jim Rohn quote, be content with what you have while you pursue what you want. Well, you can sort of mm. paraphrase that. Be content with where you're at while you're on your journey to the next stage. Oh, that's amazing. And thanks for giving that takeaway to the audience uh, as we uh, yeah finish up here. Chris, this has been so helpful, so amazing. Hopefully thousands and millions of people listen to this because the gems you dropped. What's the best way people can get a hold of you, reach out to you, connect with you more and, and learn more? Yeah, they can follow me uh, either on Instagram or Facebook uh, at Chris Widener Speaker. They can uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at Chris Widener. You know, they can Google me. They can find me on YouTube, any of the different places, uh, plenty of places they can find me. Perfect. All right, everyone, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much. Uh, make sure to uh, give us a review, give us a comment, anything you learned and uh, get, show Chris your appreciation and we'll see you next week. Cheers, y'all. That concludes another episode of Rapid Results. Remember to leave a review about something you learned so others can share the knowledge. Keep being unstoppable in your pursuit of the lifestyle freedom you desire. And we'll see you next week.